Today I have for you good news and good news and good news. Now, you're welcome to listen to all of it if you want to, or you can listen until you find something helpful and check out, or you can take a nap now at your choice as you wish. But Paul has been writing to his friends in Rome, and he's told them all the bad news in chapter 7 of this book of Romans, and we heard that three weeks ago. But chapter 8 is full of good news. We've been there the last two weeks, and we pick up today in verse 26, where Paul writes, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Is that not an amazing all-purpose promise? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Yeah, baby, because who among us is never weak? Who among us is never tired? Who among us never gets scared? Who among us never needs a little bit of help? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. That means no matter what happens, how weak we are, no matter how bad it gets, the Holy Spirit is there with us to help us. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Say that with me. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Let's make that personal. The Holy Spirit helps me in my weakness. Say that with me. The Holy Spirit helps me in my weakness. The Holy Spirit does that. And Paul tells us one of the things that the Spirit does to help us. He writes, We do not know how we ought to pray. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who watches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. When you want to pray and you're not sure what to say or how to pray, and the only thing that comes out is, hmm, or, or, that's okay. Because that's the Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness, praying through us with groanings too deep for words. You see, even when we don't know how to pray, God knows what needs to be prayed for. And if, the, if God can decipher, hmm, and and imagine how well he can do when we use actual words. And those words don't have to be lofty. They don't have to be poetic. They don't have to be elaborate. They don't have to be erudite. They don't have to be eloquent. Just as we pray out of our heart and open ourselves up to the Lord, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness and prays both for us and through us. And that's good news. It gets better. Paul continues, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That is another amazing all-purpose promise. Which means that no matter what happens or what the events are or our circumstances or the messes that we step in, and we all step in messes, don't we? That God is right there with us, getting us through the mess and pulling little bits of good out of it. Now, when bad things happen, we've all heard people say, usually with a sad shake of their head, everything happens for a reason. That is not what this verse means. Because everything happens for a reason suggests that God is the one who's behind the bad stuff that happens, and that's simply not true. Because if it were, God would be a monster who makes monstrous messes, who leads us into temptation, who makes people we love sick and kills them. 
And that is not the God that we serve. This verse does not say God causes all things. It says God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That means that no matter what happens or what mess that we're in, that God is there with us, not doing the bad stuff, but working through the bad stuff to bring some little bit of good out of it, even if it's just a smidgen and even if it takes a while to emerge. For instance, in our Old Testament story today, we hear about, remember, dirty, sneaky thief, trickster Jacob, who gets tricked by his trickster uncle Laban. Jacob has fallen in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, and he offers to work for Laban for seven years in exchange to be able to marry her. And Laban knows a good deal when he hears it because often you have to pay somebody to take your daughter off your hands. So he thinks this is great. He agrees to that. And seven years later, Jacob is ready for his wedding and his wedding night. And Laban puts on a big wedding. But after it gets dark at the reception and Jacob has had plenty to drink, Laban slips his older daughter Leah into Jacob's tent instead of Rachel. And Jacob doesn't notice until the next morning when the sun comes up. What? And he's furious. And Uncle Laban just shrugs his shoulders and says, it's not our custom to marry off the younger daughter before the older one. Finish your honeymoon with Leah, and after that you can have Rachel too for another seven years of work. Now, is that not a raw deal? And it introduces, and there is tension in this family for the rest of their lives as, as Jacob loves Rachel more than he does Leah. And the two daughters, the two wives, start to compete to see who can pump out the most children. And Rachel falls behind four to nothing. So she gives her maidservant, to Jacob as wife number three so that he can have children with her for, for, for uh, Rachel. Well, Leah, not to be outdone, does the same thing. So now Jacob's bouncing between these four wives from night to night to night, which some of us husbands think that might be kind of fun, but not when the four women don't get along with each other, and they don't. Now, Leah ends up winning, winning the baby contest of Jacob's 12 sons. She has six of them. The two maidservants have two each, and Rachel brings up the rear, having only two children, and then dying in childbirth with the second one. This is such a profoundly sad story with lying and cheating and jealousy and favoritism and dysfunction. And you thought your family was bad. Now, where was God in all of this? Did he move Jacob to cheat his brother? Or Laban to cheat Jacob? Or the two wives to compete with each other? Or Jacob to show favoritism? No, God didn't do any of that. That was those people's choices. Now, we think in the, in the course of a story, wouldn't it have been so much nicer if if Jacob had just been able to marry only his first love, Rachel, and they lived happily ever after. Yeah, maybe, but that's not how the story turned out. It's not usually how the story turns out, is it? Because if it had, then all of the rest of history and the Bible would have been different 
dramatically different because, you see, Moses, the lawgiver, and Jesus, the Messiah, are descendants of Leah, not Rachel. If there were no Leah, there would have been no exodus from slavery for for Israel. There would have been no Ten Commandments, no New Covenant, no Savior, no salvation. If it weren't for some of the yuck in your lives, you would not be the child of God that you are now. God does not do everything, especially not the bad stuff, but God works through everything, especially the bad stuff, to cause all things to work together for the good of us who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And all of that dysfunction, God does not do that, but He works through it to make us into who we are. And what is the the goal of all of this? Well, Paul tells us, he explains. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God intends for us to be just like Jesus. Now, remember Genesis chapter 1 from a couple of months ago in that sermon series in June about how we are created in God's image to be like God, but that first couple messed up and selfishly disobeyed God, got kicked out of the garden, and that image of God was broken and bent inside of them, and that same broken and brokenness has been passed down through the ages all the way down to us. So that between the brokenness that we've inherited and the yuck that life throws at us, and our own poor, foolish choices that we make because of ignorance or negligence or selfishness, that image of God is sometimes bent and broken beyond recognition. God, our Father, however, is hard at work inside of us to reform us and reshape us and return us to that image of Jesus. The trouble is, Some of that brokenness is so bad in some parts of our life that it takes some real pounding and hammering to beat us back into the shape that God intends for us to be. Now, does that mean that God is pounding on us? No, He doesn't have to. Life and the enemy of our soul and our own foolish choices make life hard enough. God doesn't have to make it any worse. But he works through all of those unpleasantries and inconveniences and illnesses and injuries and selfishness. He works through all of that to bring out little little gobs of good and to get us through that. Uh, Okay. It kind of stinks that Satan and life make life so hard. But Satan and life lose. And Paul explains how. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God is on our side. Or rather, if we say yes to Jesus and join his family, we're on his side. 
And if we're on God's side, what difference does it make who's on the other side? Because we've read the last book of the Bible, Revolution, Revelation, God wins. And if we're on God's side in God's family, we win with Him. And on top of that, if God, who so loved the world, which includes each one of us, that He gave His only Son, if God would give us His only Son, how much more will He give us anything else that we need? You say, but what about all those mistakes I've made? What about all those times I've been unkind, those cruel words that when I've been selfish? Well, what about them? You remember from two weeks ago, the first verse of this chapter 8, where Paul writes, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we say yes to Jesus, all of that stuff from our past is washed away and everything in our present as we confess and ask God to forgive us, He does. He does. And He doesn't ever bring it up again. God is not like that that unforgiving friend or spouse who says, you remember that time? God doesn't do that because love keeps no record of wrongs. And God is love. And even if someone were to bring it up, who would that be? Well, St. Paul asked that exact question. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And the answer to that question is in Revelation chapter 12, when the Bible calls Satan the accuser. The accuser. Satan is the one who brings charges against us. Do you think that Judge God listens to him? And then who would our defense attorney be? Paul answers. Who then is the one who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. God's on our side. He's pulling for us. He's, he wants us to be doing well. And so Paul tells us who our defense attorney is. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. In the final judgment, in the courtroom of heaven, God the Father is the judge behind the bench. We are the defendant. Satan is the prosecuting attorney, and our defense attorney is not sitting with us at the, de the defense table. He's sitting right next to the judge. Praying for us. A good lawyer knows the law. A better lawyer knows the judge. And the best lawyer is the son of the judge. We have the best lawyer ever in Jesus Christ, the son of God, who is sitting there praying for us, telling God that we're okay, and telling God, the judge, and everybody else that he has paid the penalty for our crime. That he went to the cross and died and rose again to rescue us, to ransom us from sin, from death, from the grave, from hell. How could it be any better than that to have the Holy Spirit and the Son of God praying on our behalf to the Father as the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. But it does get better. Paul concludes 
Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. How much condemnation is there for us who are in His family? None. And what does God work for our good? All things, everything. And who is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us? Jesus Himself and the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. Promised you at the beginning that I had for you good news and good news and good news. Let's hear it. Let's believe it. And let's live it. Because we are in.